In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus, Word of God, reveal more of yourself to us through your presence in the Bible. Led by the Holy Spirit, guide our time of reflection. May it increase our desire for you in the Scripture and in the sacrament. Amen. We have so much to say about our Gospel reading this weekend, and it's the only weekend in the three-year cycle of readings that we hear the story of the wedding feast at Cana. But we'll have to lightly tread through our first and second readings to get there. Yet the first reading actually shares a commonality with the wedding feast of Cana in that this passage from Isaiah uses wedding imagery. You may remember that we covered this passage before on Sunday Setup. It's the first reading for the Vigil Mass of Christmas. And in that episode, we outlined how Isaiah is assuring the Israelites after they've returned from the exile that the city of Jerusalem will experience a new glory in which nations shall behold your vindication and all the kings your glory. There's at least three aspects of the reading that involve wedding imagery. First, Isaiah says that the city will be called by a new name. This reminds us of how a bride takes on a new name at a wedding. Second, the city will be a glorious crown in the hand of the Lord, just as a bride is crowned as queen at a royal coronation. And finally, the third is the most obvious. As a young man marries a virgin, your builder shall marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices in his bride, so shall your God rejoice in you. I hope you like St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians because we're going to be hearing it as our second reading for the next seven weeks. The Christians in Corinth were coming to believe that some gifts of the Spirit were more important than others, and specifically that those who received the gift of tongues had an elite status since the ability to suddenly speak an unintelligible language was the most glamorous and flashy. But Paul here channels his inner Oprah and says, you get a charism, and you get a charism, and you get a charism. His point is that everyone receives charisms, or gifts, from the Spirit, and the gifts are meant for building up the community. Further addressing this issue in Corinth, Paul actually puts the gifts of variety of tongues and interpretation of tongues last on his list, because, as he'll explain later in the letter, without an interpretation of tongues, The gift does not do anything to build up the community as a whole, but only the believer himself or herself. Okay, we can concentrate now on our gospel passage, the wedding feast of Cana. Right off the bat, we see that the first character listed in the opening credits is not Jesus, but the mother of Jesus. This shows that she's going to have an important role to play in the story, and indeed she does. Since most women at the time would have been involved in the -the behind-the-scenes preparation of a wedding, she would have noticed the shortage of wine before Jesus and the disciples. Now, weddings were a really big deal back then. Families often tried to outdo one another in town, trying to see who could pull off the biggest celebration the community had ever known. And in a way, it still kind of happens today, doesn't it? Yet back then, the registry for a newlywed couple wouldn't contain requests for elaborate steak knives or a toaster oven, but rather wine, and lots and lots of wine. The most common gift to give a bride and groom at the time of Jesus was wine. So when we're told that the family runs out of wine, it could be that they didn't prepare well enough. But it could also be that the family didn't have many friends who cared for them enough to send large amounts of wine. Enter Jesus, who's informed by Mary that they have no wine. Jesus' response to his mother raises many eyebrows. Woman, how does your concern affect me? Literally, he says, what to you and to me? It was a common Jewish expression at the time, something like how today, forget about it, is common among New Yorkers. It was meant to show distance and interest or understanding between two people. 
There's all sorts of theories about just why Jesus uses this phrase, but perhaps the best explanation comes to us by way of a French cardinal, Albert Van Waugh. He says that until this moment, following the culture, Jesus had been bound in close relationship to his mother. Yet now, by saying this phrase, he recognizes that his role beckons him beyond the you and me of his mother and himself. As a quick note, Mary's do whatever he tells you is almost identical in Greek to the translation of the passage in Genesis where Pharaoh tells the Egyptians to go to Joseph and do whatever he tells you. Lastly, we're told that there were six stone water jars there. Stone water jars were normally used for washing vessels and hands, and each family typically only had one in their home. Whereas clay pots had to be discarded if they became ritually unclean, that is, by coming into contact with something unclean, stone jars didn't fall into the same category. Yet, that the family had six means they likely borrowed them from other families. And then we can't overlook the sheer magnitude of the wine that Jesus makes from these jars. It's something like 120 to 180 gallons of wine. That's a silly amount of wine. There's an extravagance to the miracle that reminds us of the prophets Amos and Joel, who both describe God's salvation as a tremendous celebration with superabundant wine. So that's it. That's your Sunday setup for this second Sunday in Ordinary Time in Year C. May this knowledge of the story behind the scripture allow you to encounter Jesus Christ in a new way this weekend. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.